Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. I'm glad you're here. I'll be interviewing CEOs who have successfully scaled their B2B sales organization. In each episode, I'll start by uncovering the sales background of each CEO, dig into the strategies they use to build their sales organization, and wrap it up with what the future holds. We'll cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of scaling a sales organization. I'm your host, Alice Hyman. So all of you out there listening have a CRM of some kind. I know you do. Uh, We can't operate our businesses without a CRM. We can't build a sales organization. We can't do the things that we need to do without a CRM. But think about how many things your CRM really isn't doing very well for you. Uh, This guest fixed that problem for all of us. And I can't wait for her to tell you about it because our data is so messy. And especially when we're dealing with customer data, we need a better way, right? A better way. So welcome Heidi Messer from Collective Eye. I'm so excited to have you today. We've got so much to talk about. I am, I'm excited to be here and I can't wait to have this conversation. So just start off by telling everyone what Collective Eye does. Sure. Collective Eye, it's short for collective intelligence. And what we do is we provide a layer of intelligence on top of a traditional sales stack. So if you think about it, there's your CRM, which you described, and then there's the work tools that sellers are using to actually make things happen. The two don't talk to each other. Um, There's no external information about buyers to inform decisions. There's no way to focus, to be productive. Uh, And so all of the time that is spent trying to fix the problems in CRM, we fix so that sellers can sell, managers can coach, and everybody else has absolute transparency into what's happening. So one of the things that I know that sales leaders are notorious for doing because they can't get the data they need out of their uh, their CRM is exporting data into Excel spreadsheets. It's and crazy. Mixing it around to get what they want out of it. So does Collective Eye help solve that problem? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you the, the three things that we're really focused on. One is automating any low value tasks. So I would say things like having your sellers spend a day a week inputting data into CRM that nobody trusts, <laughs> we automate that whole process. The second thing I like is- the way you add that putting data in that nobody trusts. (laughs) Nobody trusts. And then people do all day pipeline reviews to review what people put into CRM. So, and then they don't trust the pipeline reviews. You know, somebody have happy ears or they sandbagging. I mean, all these crazy things that we say. So let's just start and get a clean capture of data into CRM and have it done automated. Nobody has to worry about trusting it. No one has to spend the time doing it. Right. But then going to the next level, you know, what else, you know this, that sellers operate at 30% productivity rates. Like there, there is no other function in a company that is as unproductive as sales. So what else are people doing? Right. They're spending a day a week forecasting, right? Crazy. Like we poll everyone in the organization. What are you going to commit to? Right. We put it into spreadsheets. Sometimes we use software to help us manage that. Um, and then the goal is to accurately predict the future, which no one has done in the history of time. So we actually automate the whole forecasting process literally to be one click, no opinion, all science-based and offered on a daily basis. Because what we want people to get to is instead of trying to figure out what happened, we want them to focus on adapting to what's likely to happen. 
Um, so I view, you know, I don't view sales as fatalistic. I don't think your forecast is your 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 death sentence or whatever. I think you can change your forecast by the things that you do. And so in order to change, you need to have a forecast that you ac can access every single day. Yes. Oh, agreed. Agreed. So that sounds like a wonderful tool. We'll have to there's we more. Might, there's more besides more, forecasting. More about that we talk about other things, but let's rewind to about ten years ago when you and your husband and your brother probably were just like sitting around one day. I tell people we're VC's nightmare. The problem. You know, nobody wants to invest in husband and wife. No one wants to invest in brother and sister. Oh so my gosh, I can't even imagine. Right. So you're all <laughs> sitting around. How did this come to be? How did you start this company? And what were you doing right before you started it? So um, this isn't our first time to the rodeo. My brother and I, we actually started one of the first ad networks called LinkShare. Uh, it's now called Rakuten LinkShare because we sold it um, very successful exit in the mid 2000s. What was interesting about that was we actually saw marketing transform from being a gut based endeavor to one that was highly scientific, very adaptive and focused on optimization. My husband was the COO of Overstock.com. So he saw retail sales move from offline to online, and he saw technology being used for extreme personalization for us as consumers. So take those two insights. The how do you go from gut to science? How do you go from offline to digital and personalized? And look at B2B sales, right? Both of those transformations were yet to happen a decade ago. And so when we sort of looked in under the hood and we said, why is sales so late to the party, right? Why why, why is everybody else adapted to, to the internet? Why are we in the Stone Age? <laughs> why are we in the Stone Age? And what we saw was people were managing their sales organizations off of a database, which you can call it CRM, you can add bells and whistles to it. But in essence, it's just a collection of historical data that right. up until recently was very unreliable. And what they had done was they built all these internal processes that were completely seller centric. You know this. I mean, you're you're an incredible strategist who comes in and tells people, you know, you need to focus on the buyer. It sounds so obvious, but, but everybody <laughs> was looking in a mirror to drive. Yeah. So we were like, we've got to provide them the windshield. We've got to provide them the insights into what's happening in the market. What what are their sellers actually doing every day, and is it working? Right? Can you use a forecast to like? Track, take your temperature, not necessarily set goals. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you guys were talking about all of this. Yes. And 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 then like what happened? You just said, okay, we're gonna build it. We're gonna build this. How did that come about? Yeah. So um, so we knew that this was gonna be a long term endeavor, and we also knew that a lot of venture capital wouldn't be as patient to help us build a network. So we built a network model that really was similar to what Overstock was and what LinkShare was, what Facebook is, what Amazon is. Um, and we actually took our own money from our prior exits. We founded the company. We started to do this crazy thing where we said, okay, we're gonna unsilo data, not just within companies, but between companies. 
Um, everybody told us it wouldn't work. So I'm sure there are people listening who have now, now $100 million companies who heard that in the beginning, because I'm convinced if you haven't heard that, you don't have a good idea. Right, right. And, um, and we went forth and, and, you know, literally brick by brick, we, we built this network. And we've now seen over $250 billion in closed transactions. Um, we use the most advanced forms of AI to make companies more successful. And for me, the most powerful thing is, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this without sounding uh, emotional, but sales is the lifeblood of companies. Like yeah. our, our entire economy depends on sales. And if you can bring more certainty to sales and less volatility, you impact the livelihoods of every single person employed by a company. Yeah, right, right. So for me, that's, that's a mission that drives me every day. Wow. So you started a company, you didn't have the software built yet. So how did you start out? How did you start building this incredible network that you talked about? You, you had done it prior, so you knew how to do it. How did you build a network and what did you sell in the beginning and who did the selling? Well, as you know, I, I think there's no entrepreneur I've met who isn't a great salesperson. Uh, you, you, sales is such an essential skill. I think every college should teach it by the way, I, I know Absolutely. you teach. Um, I think any entrepreneurship program that doesn't have sales as a part of it uh, is missing the boat. You know, there's there's no great idea that ever came to light without a great salesperson. Right. And you know what's funny about it too, Heidi, is that uh, CEOs, especially some young ones, you know, and more in the startup uh, years, you know, under five years old will tell me, these CEOs will tell me they don't like sales. They don't want to do sales. I go, but you do it and you do it really well. Mm -hmm. And I, and then I ask them, what do you think sales is? You know, I was going to say, that comment is a misconception. I just want to help my customers. Right. That's what sales is. It's not (laughs) manipulation. It's not trickery. It's not coercion. It's not selling something to somebody that they don't want or need. Sales is solving problems. And when you find the people who need the problem solved that you solve, it's a beautiful thing. So it's when I hear a CEO telling me they don't want to do sales or they don't like sales, I'm just like, ah, um, you have to do sales. And if you don't want to do sales, you probably should not you know, start a business. Um, unless I guess if you have a partner who really loves sales, I guess that could work. But you're right. A, a good entrepreneurs sell. Because they not only do they have to sell their product, they have to sell all the people who come to work for them when they're new and nobody knows who they are. Investors. They have to sell all the investors. It is a sales job being an entrepreneur. I, I totally agree with you. And it's funny. I think the things you do early on are unfortunately viewed as sort of hacking around sales. And then as it becomes like yes. professionalized, I think people forget the lessons of the early sales. So the early sales you are personalizing every sale. Like I, I remember the first people I went in to present the idea, I sat down and I was thinking about, well, what are they going to think when they hear yeah. this? What's yeah. important to their business? How am I going to persuade them to try this new thing? And then somehow I think what happens to companies is you, you get out of that habit of thinking that way. Like when you're first starting, you have no other choice because if you don't <laughs> personalize the sale to the, that investor, that first customer, right. they're never going to sign up there. You know, you don't sit there and say, what's my ICP? Um, how do I, what's the stage of the buying journey they're in? Like, <laughs> you're like, whatever stage they're in, I'm going to figure it out. Right. And I think that sort of thinking, you have to find a way to scale that. And that's part of what we do. But 
you have to find a way to scale that that doesn't lose the personalization yeah. piece of yeah. it. And I think if I were to say like the one path I think sales is going to have to retract from, or not all sales, I think a lot of companies are, have already moved on from this, but there's a significant portion that still believe sales itself is a process, meaning right. sales is an assembly line. You know, I, I put everyone in a stage, um, that stage provides odds. Of we do this or not type of activity in this stage. And if we don't do it, we can't move to the next stage. So it's so funny. So I will tell people that um, sales to me is like sports, right? You you get into a game, you know, what is it? Who is it? Muhammad Ali that said everyone has a plan until they get punched, punched in the face. <laughs> punched like, in the face. <laughs> Like, like sales is, is like that. Like you, you can say, okay, we're going to go by this playbook. But as soon as you encounter someone on the other side, if you're a great salesperson, right. you're modifying that playbook. You're, you're, you're adapting, you're, you're changing things. And I think the sales organizations that say rigidity, and I'm, I'm not going to allow a salesperson to pick the right collateral to use in a particular situation or the right response. They, they all have to do the same thing. I, I think those organizations are going to be very challenged in a world where people right. expect to be met where they are. Well, just think about where playbooks came from. They came from sports, right? And think about what we do in sports. We know all the plays so we yes. can use them as needed, not use them in order. Can you imagine if a football team used their plays in some kind of order? I mean, use the same playbook for every game. Well, right, or use the same playlist <laughs> over and over again, They right? It just simply wouldn't work. So we took playbooks out of sports, but then we were like, oh, here's the playbook, follow the playbook. No, you need to know all the plays and you need to know when to use each one. And that is totally driven by the customer and where they are in the journey. We have to meet them where they are. So it sounds like you were doing that when you were first selling. So were you and your brother and your husband out selling or were everybody? Some of, one of you working on the product and some of you worked on selling. What were you doing? So, yeah, so we were all and it's interesting because we were doing sales and selling technology for sales. It was like product development every day. So <laughs> as we were learning for ourselves what people were, how people were selling and the people we were selling to, we were modifying our product to be more adaptive and agile in the marketplace. So it's it's funny. I mean, like for, for us, for instance, like hiring salespeople is so stressful because I know they're selling to people who manage that. Like like, you know, you, when you when you get a jury, you're never supposed to get a jury that looks just like you because everyone, right. you're just much more harsh on people That's you see right. in yourself. So imagine now you have to hire salespeople who sell to people who sell. Right. So anyway, so so to answer your question, we were all selling at all the time. We were we were all taking feedback and ingesting it and contributing to the, the product. Um, you know, my 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 brother has different strengths than I have. My husband has different strengths than I have. And we were sort of, you know triaging our talents um, to the places where they were the most needed, but everybody in a startup sells. I, if someone tells you they're not, everyone's not selling, I, I don't know how yeah, you sell. You got a problem if they're not. So, so when the product was, I mean, did you wait till you had some semblance of the product ready or did you go out and sell it with the idea and then keep taking feedback and build it while you were selling it? So you're always building. I don't think there's any product that I've ever seen that's done, um, but we did go out with, a finished product. Like we didn't go out and say, you know, sign up for this experiment and we'll, we'll deliver it and wait. We, we, we had to show certain value. Now the, the thing that's hard about selling very disruptive technology, because I think there are technologies on the market that take what people do 
and they make it incrementally easier to do that. Right. For me personally, those are not very interesting businesses because I think you're, you're basically, if, for example, if you're, if you're incrementally innovating on a process that's going to go away, you'll get a lot of early traction. Um, but eventually the process totally goes away and who wants to be the, who wants to be the person maintaining the mainframe? Like I, I don't, right? <laughs> so, but, but from a sales point of view, that's a much easier sale. Right much easier sale. You're not an evangelist. You're, you're literally just a salesperson who says, I'm going to make your life today easier um, than it is. But you're not leading and shepherding people into the future. Right. We were shepherding people into the future. And that, um, and I'm happy to talk about, you know, strategies for doing that, but that that's a lot harder of a sales process. It does actually give you much better habits because you have to hire sales people who are able to be trusted advisors. And there's right. two pieces to that. One is the trust. Do they have fundamental sales skills? The second piece is, do they have enough knowledge that they can provide people with advice on how to move forward and yes. not just explain something? Right. They're not script readers. No. And that's the thing. I think that today we should start looking at hiring a different type of salesperson and training them differently as well. But let's talk about that because I know you had some learnings along the way. So a lot of companies are out there still trying to sell the way that we sold 10 or even 20 years ago. And you and I both know that just doesn't work. So in the beginning, when you were selling, things were a bit different. Um, how did you sell then? And what have you learned in the 10 years that has made you change the way you sell? and yeah. hire salespeople? Well, it's so interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, I'll give two examples and then I'll talk about pre, well, one example would be pre-COVID, post-COVID because I think there's a massive, sure. there's a sure. defining line that happened after COVID and, and I don't think we're going back. So that's worth talking about separately. But, you know, just, it, I think it's always helpful when people share their failures. No one ever wants to do that on, on a podcast with someone as successful oh, as you. Oh, I luckily get great CEOs who will tell me all the things they did wrong so that oh my others gosh. can learn from them. Because you don't have enough list, time on this podcast for me right? to tell you all the things I've done wrong. All of you listening out there, all of you CEOs and all of you who support CEOs, we have all made mistakes and there is nothing wrong with that, of course, unless we keep making the same mistakes over and over. But we can also learn from the things that others have done as well as just not feel so bad that we did that same mistake. It's yeah, really I like to make new mistakes. Growing a company, right? put it. So, so I would say the biggest learning I had was there's a particular kind of sales leader who can sell innovation. Um, and there's a kind of sales leader who wants to sell the status quo. We needed the former. And we went through a couple of iterations of people who were much better at the latter. So instead of, you know, looking and saying, let me really understand what the mission and vision is of this company. I want to take my playbook from the last company I went to and, you know, bring it into the playbook that I have, you know, to this company. When you are selling disruption in particular, I don't think playbooks work for anyone, by the way, I, I think, you know, or at least one playbook, right? I think there's multiple ways to respond in sales. But I think somebody who comes in and says, I have, my signature is I do the same people process technology, for example, like that, as soon as I hear that, like little bells go off in my head now that say, you're not going to be a person who's obsessed with understanding how the buyer buys. Right. You're going to impose 
your way of selling and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't, but if it doesn't work, you're not going to adapt. And it's the people that can And you're adapt. not going to take responsibility for it either. That's yes. what I've seen. People who are so rigid in their methodology or their approach, their playbook is built kind of thing. And this is the one I follow. Uh, they don't take responsibility when it fails. Yes. And, and, and that's particularly devastating for, for a company when you have somebody who is starts with the blame game of, you know, the dog ate my homework and, you know, it's, it's the market, it's, 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 the market. You know, it's delivery, it's operations. It's, it's always somebody else. Yeah. It's hard to find salespeople who are entrepreneurial, agile, forward thinking, uh, really customer focused. So how did you do it? You said you had a few fails on that, but how did you do it? So I think, and, and we were lucky because, you know, I, I think we were able to see that pattern that you described with one instance of learning. So I, I love what you said about everyone makes mistakes, but we just don't make them like over and over again. You know, we're not insane. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so once you see a sales leader like that, if you've done the sale before and you see that like the feedback they're bringing, because I do think there's feedback you want to listen to, like markets do yeah. change, people's preferences change. But when you see the pattern that you described of all of a sudden, like, I'm not going to maniacally figure out how to adapt. I'm going to start blaming everything. We were able to look for a different kind of sales leader. And I think for me, that was a big revelation because when we first looked for a sales leader in this instance, we looked for somebody who had done it successfully over and over again. And, and I didn't realize that could be a liability. Right. So the next time we looked and said, let's find someone who's had demonstrated success. Yeah. But in their conversations with us, they can ebb and flow. They can if you know, you throw a situation at them, they don't say people process technology like they actually say, like, here's how I thought about a problem and here's how I solved it and here's how I scaled it. And so once I got past sort of the buzzwords that a lot of the the people that you described, you know, the blame game can't adapt once I got past the buzzwords, I got to be a better interviewer for sales. Does that make sense? Like, Oh, and so important. I think we do learn, but yeah, you know, think about it. You're a founder CEO and you're out selling and you're running your company and you are not an expert in hiring. You are right. not an expert in interviewing, right? So, and people who do it every day, all day long, get super good at it, right? That's why I am uh, of the mind that we use recruiters who know what they're doing to help us narrow down. Right. But when you're, you know, a founder, a CEO, and you're young in the company's life cycle, you're not going to have the money necessarily to pay someone else to do it. And it's hard to learn how to be a really good interviewer, but after you've hired salespeople, it's hard still, right? But after you've hired a few of the wrong players, you start to think, well, what was it, right? Did I ask the right questions? What did I forget to ask? And you become a better interview interviewer by virtue of the fact that you need to hire a better candidate and you don't well, want the kind you got last time. I, I think there's, there's two issues. One is, if you're a good founder, you pick advisors and you strive to have people who are smarter than you. And so when you go into the interview, you're going into it with, I want to hire an expert in something that I may not be an expert in. And so you're willing to cede some of your own judgment in the hopes of that person being. So, right. you, so you go in with like the benefit of the doubt, sometimes to a detriment. 
The second thing is, you know, COVID, I think the average tenure of a salesperson is 12 to 18 months now. So what that means in a salesperson's lifetime, in the first decade of their career, they've probably gone through 10 interview processes. That means you get really good at the skill of interviewing. So when you say you hire recruiters, they're they're going the next level. They're not just listening to the way someone's responding to a question. They're back channeling. They're looking for references, referrals, like any pieces of information that can inform yep. that. Most founders, you've you've got the time you have when you're sitting in front of the person. Right. You know, and the needs you have, which most, you know, often is desperate. <laughs> like, I need someone that's to run it. this function right. now. Right, that's part of the problem, right? We hire out of desperation. And and it's like, oh, anybody would be a good body, right? <laughs> Are they breathing? Oh, yes. Hire them. And that is a dangerous thing. But it, I understand why it happens, certainly. Yeah, me too. And, and I think, you know, we were going to talk about sort of the post-COVID world, which I think has taken all of these opportunities and challenges and magnified them. Yeah. You know, hiring is is one. I think that salespeople today, you what you could get away with with volume, you could do more activities, more you no longer it, yeah. you you weren't, shouldn't have been doing it before. Right. Now you cannot. Um right. people are not in their offices. How, how many emails do you get a day from solicitations? Uh, oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny that you say that like all CEOs, all senior leaders, all people at companies who make decisions get tons of email, internal email and external email. And most of the external email, if it's not from a customer, it's junk, right? right. But you probably get 10 a day minimum from people who are trying to sell you something. Delete, 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 right? So that doesn't work. So sending more email is just giving everyone a bad name, but we continue to do it, unfortunately. Um, now people are really spamming. I've got, oh my gosh, on LinkedIn, so many emails from people mm -hmm. selling the same exact thing. They want to generate leads for me. I'm like, wow, well, if this is the method that you're using to generate leads, I would never hire you to generate leads for me. I mean, it's crazy, right? And then if you call, you've got to make so many dials before someone will answer. And sure, you could use something like Connect and Sell. I had, I had um, interviewed Chris Beal not that long ago, and, and he's amazing. And what they do is amazing. So if you are cold calling, you absolutely should use something like that. But again, the results are so minimal. You yeah. know, you've got to start to think we can't just do more. Yep. We have to do better. Yes. It has to be personalized. And we have to do a better job of training our sales teams, you know, starting with strategies that allow for adaptation and then training our salespeople or sales professionals, whether they're, you know, um, SDRs or account executives or to uh, deal with different situations and to think on their feet and to understand and have empathy for buyers, right? Not to read scripts not to, you know, bombard people with unwanted emails. I mean, I know, you know, as an executive today, it's it's gone from a mild nuisance to actually inhibiting the work I do because I right. miss important emails. Like how many emails are you starting off with now? Like apologies for my late response because you were spending two oh. hours in the morning cleaning out your inbox. Absolutely. It's, it's really, it's become really... <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. So I think we just can't simply can't do it, but tell us in your organization how, okay. So what, whatever your sales organization looks like now and how you sell now, bring us up to that. So you were doing the selling along with the other founders, and then you hired a couple salespeople that didn't work out. You finally got some that did. How did you grow your sales organization 
internally and at the same time what kinds of things were you doing to meet your customers where they are and make it easy for them to buy from you that's such a great question so um, well, first of all, we eat our own dog food. We use our own application. I, I've but, heard to say we drink our own champagne. We drink so. our own champagne. Much better. Much better. I'm going to steal that from you. We drink our own champagne. And I think, you know, the way that I look at it is we moved our sales organization. And I'm going to borrow a term from engineering because um, because I think it's so apt here. Engineering departments used to work in what was called waterfall. So somebody would come in and say, for 2023, our plans are this, we're going to, we're going to build this roadmap, this product for the year. And then they would parse out pieces and everyone did their own piece and no one knew what anyone else was working on and nothing changed. You just, okay. no, that, that should sound very familiar for someone who comes in and says people process technology. Like first I hire people, then I give them a process, then I get technology to support that process. And then I, right. and then, and then I just leave it. We switched to agile. And there are some principles about Agile that sound like wonderful when you say them, but you actually have to be very intentional about them. So well, let's pause for a second. Just, you know, for the listeners out there who aren't as familiar with Agile, because that is something that we use in manufacturing and, and other things. And now it's coming into sales and it's big, becoming something we way. talk about very frequently now, Agile sellers. So let's just go ahead and give a little bit of an overview of what is Agile. What does that actually mean? I mean, we know that it kind of means bendy, right? Flexible, but right. further. <laughs> Agile really describes the outcome, which is you're able to, as an organization, adapt to changes as they're happening rather than being reactive and saying, okay, that 12-year plan I had, um, gee, the whole market, like I'm Nokia, like nobody's using our product. Like instead of building the same thing over and over again or Kodak or whatever, you can, yeah. right? like you can suddenly say like, I need to adapt. And sales organizations, I think, need to do this more than ever because you know, there's there's this concept of of you know the world is is exponentially changing and it's mm -hmm. almost changing faster than like I feel like I'm always gasping for breath because things are changing right. that I have to keep up with all the time. Right. So so agile describes the outcome of having an organization that's working perfectly in sync to adapt to changes that are happening real time in marketplaces. In sales, what is what does that mean? So some things in sales are designed to be very rigid. So if you have very rigid processes, you have, you know, the scripts we were talking about, it's very hard for a seller to go out into the market and say, this buyer isn't at a stage because there's 10 of them. <laughs> Two They're of them all at their buyers. own stage. Like, how can you say, oh, what stage is this? deal in. Well, this buyer is over here, this buyer is over here, and there's eight other people. I'm not sure where they are. Right. I was, or I was in contract and my champion quit yesterday oh and their replacement yeah. is coming in two weeks from a company that used competitive technology. Like, wait, are we now in um, proposal again? Are we in discovery? Where, right. where are we in the world? So why even like, look at that? Like, like it is what it is <laughs> and just say as an organization, how do we make it that we've hired these experts? We've hired yeah. these highly trained professionals. I will never use the word sales rep, by the way. I always say sales professional. Sales professionals were hired to use their human skills, yes. relationship building, right. empathy, you know, um, advocacy, like persuasive communication. Like these are all fundamental skills that they were designed to use. So how do I design an organization that allows them to do that with focus. Right. And to me, that's where I see agile differing from like, so it means seller empowerment. It means extreme yeah. transparency. 
it means organizational accountability. It's, there's no seller that can commit to a deal. It's an organization committing to helping a buyer make the best decision. So give us some examples of how you've done this in your company, because I think everybody's chomping at the bin out there listening, going, okay, great, great. How do I do it? How do I do it? So when you move from this type of selling you had been doing into this new world of selling because of COVID, you know, made everything move so much faster and we had to change so much faster, you moved to this agile type of selling you already had some salespeople in place, and I'm sure you were still, um, as a founder, somewhat to some degree involved in sales because we always are, right? Our, mm-hmm. our, we are always involved in sales, but as our, our company matures, you know, our role changes. So how, how did you move your current sales team from what they had been doing to this more agile way? So, so starting with the champagne, we, we automated everything that they were doing that was low value. Yeah. So there's not a seller right. at Collective Eye that spends more than 10 minutes a week in CRM. They just don't. They, they, they enter their opportunity, they enter a buyer, and then our technology does everything else. What do we do at that time? Because it's not just the technology. Now we gave them back all this time. We tripled down on training. So consider what most sales organizations do. They have an SKO once a year. If I was hired the day after the SKO, I received no training for 364 days. If if I went through the SKO and I spent 72 hours getting this massive information and I quit a week later, the organization has lost all of that training and all of that knowledge, never to be seen again in the new person that we bring in. So we don't do annual SKOs. We do quarterly we call them RKOs, revenue kickoffs. We do them every quarter, but more importantly, every week, our sales team has at least one to two training sessions. And we share knowledge. So we do sales scrums, where which is a word taken from engineering, where everyone comes in and says, like, I had this situation. How would you all deal with it? And they all share knowledge around how they would deal with it. Nice. We do, um, we use Collective Eye has something called virtual deal rooms. But those deal rooms don't just include salespeople. So our-, right. our They sort can't of- because there's no, the, the days of the lone wolf seller are gone. We gone. need a team against our customers. So you cannot be out there doing it by yourself. I can't have a lawyer who thinks it's not a priority to get revenue and, and have a salesperson have to be hounding that lawyer. Like the lawyers are in the deal room. So I see all of their activities. Everyone who's participating, we all experience what the buyer's experiencing together. And so our yeah, job do you have transparent deal rooms where your buyers can come in as well, or are they just on your side? Well, it's of funny. Them? That's an evolution that we're actually wanting to put in because up until recently, buyers haven't wanted that level of transparency, but that's, that's where I think the world's going, Alice, a hundred percent. Like I think it should be sellers are selling to buyers, even multiple sellers in right. a transparent environment. Why, why should anything be hidden today. There should be no opacity in business. There's no reason. No reason. It slows people down. It, it, you know, and in the, in the absence of information, people fill in the blanks with typically wrong information. So it's better just to be transparent and open. And, you know, we also had to change our culture because I think a lot of sales culture, and, and I would be curious if you agree with this, is built on mistrust. Um, a manager is a detective. Right. right. They're always right. They, is this guy sandbagging or do they have happy years? I don't trust that they put the right forecast in. Right. I don't trust it. And they don't sometimes because, you know, I talked to a seller who told me I had this amazing deal 
And I knew it was going to close in the middle of the next quarter or the, the first month of the next quarter. So I didn't put it in my quarter, but I gave it the odds and I gave the prediction. And he said, you know, my manager wasn't going to make his number. So he called up the prospect, discounted my deal. I lost 40% oh my of my commission. And, you know, he said, so that was the last time I ever put that right. into a forecast. Why would I, why would I, I do that? Right. So, so we had to have this culture of, I, I call it problem. There's only problems and solutions. It's not, you, it's not people that you're blaming. You right. look and say, we have a problem here. What are the potential solutions? If you can't help with a the solution, then you're part of the problem. Right. But it's taking away that culture of like finger pointing of single point of accountability of, you know, the world isn't changing. Once you commit, you can never track back from that. Like you can't acknowledge when things change. And I think that the culture of that, the extreme amounts of training, extreme transparency, um, and then giving people the latitude to make decisions that are not prescribed. I think those are all how you move into an agile culture. And believe it or not, it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, people fear transparency. The, the alternative is when they call it surveillance, right? <laughs> like, like I always tell people, I'm like, when you get a virtual deal room, like your job is not to be like, gotcha. Right. Your job is to be able to say like, here's a problem that we're all spotting. How do we solve it together? That's a very different approach that's not necessarily ingrained in, in some cultures. No, absolutely not. Well, and the ongoing training is so important. Ongoing training and practice, right? It can't just be <clears throat> learn something, go off and do it, right? Um, no, you know, that's ridiculous. People have to practice a new When you a new watch spell. professional sports, right. how many hours of practice go in before the game? Right, exactly. We would think a sports team was crazy if they just said, I'm going to give you a playbook go on the field. <laughs> All right, go. Remember, you know, if you yeah. do, if you follow the playbook, you'll win 50% of the time. Like, well, we, yeah. And it's, it's like, crazy. Oh, Hey, go practice on our customers and let's see how you do. I mean, no, thank you. Um, go practice have, in the Super Bowl. Right. We have to have more opportunities for salespeople to practice. And as we think about changing and bringing our salespeople up to what the modern buyer needs, right. Mm -hmm. Meeting them where they are. Um, bringing insights, adding value, guiding people to make a good decision, bringing large groups to consensus. These are not skills we're teaching our salespeople, right? No. We do teach them how to ask questions, some of them better than others, but we're not teaching them these other skills. Like, how do you bring people to consensus? What does that even mean? What does that look like, right? We have no training exactly. for that. The other thing we're not teaching our salespeople is what a day in the life of their buyer is like. So we teach them all about the product and our sales process marks them through this way and ask these questions to get them to march through this way. But we don't teach them what a busy buyer is like, right? How they have their regular job to do. Now they've been put on this buying committee. It's not their full-time job. It's part. It's just another kind of thing they have to do on top of everything else. They're probably already overwhelmed. They may never have made a purchase like this before in their lives. Mm -hmm. And they're with a group of people who have varying levels of skill and knowledge and maybe have never made a decision like this, or maybe some of them have. And trying to get them all, you know, to understand, you know, all of the particulars of the problem that they have and all the potential ways to solve it, right? Before they choose the best one. 
Um, it's just human psychology, right? We have to take an each person through this process of making a decision and they're all doing it in their own time. But who's teaching salespeople how to do this? I don't, Nobody. I just don't see it out there. So if we want to have a more agile sales team, we need to spend time teaching them these kinds of things. All right. So your sales team has obviously. Well, I'll just say one thing yeah, in our application, ahead. we have a section called upskill wow. and that's very unique in us in a sales application to have a section where people can go in on their own self-directed and learn about different industries. And the reason we have it in there is exactly what you said, Alice, like you, you don't want to be the salesperson who was trained to do enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> Right? <laughs> which, which is how we've trained salespeople in the past, right. right? Like, like I'm going to start asking you a bunch of questions and you know, how many times have you been on the call with a less experienced salesperson? And you're like, I know this is the discovery stage. I know you were trained to ask me who the right. decision maker is, who like, like things I don't want to waste my time right. telling you because you should figure it out on your own. And then you don't get the help that a person, a human is supposed to provide. Like right. the things that salespeople are great salespeople are are incredible consensus builders. They're they're right. incredible problem solvers. Right. They're genuine. They're authentic. They're they're people you want to be on the phone with, not ones that you're sitting there checking your email, you know, while, while they're talking. Exactly. That's exactly right. A, a salesperson is someone you a good salesperson is someone you can't wait to talk to again because they're going to help you move forward to make yes. a decision. Or, you know, sometimes it's just you don't even have the information you need to know what to do next, right? So if it's this trusted advisor that you're talking about who is looking for an agile outcome, right? As you said, then they are going to be able to have a conversation that people go, wow, that was a great conversation. I do want to talk to you again. And I'd be willing to introduce you. Like I always say, you don't have to ask who else is involved in the sale. If you have a great conversation with the person who is on it's one of the natural. people who's on the buying committee, they're going to say, oh my gosh, you know who you need? Can you tell that to so-and-so? Can I get these other people gathered and we all talk about this? They're going to offer it up. If you You're do. You're going to be a connector. Your buyer's yeah. going to be a connector. Yeah. Everybody starts working and collaborating. Yeah. Like a great sale is a collaboration. That's exactly It's right. not an imposition. And, and I think, you know, we talked a, a little bit about, you know, post-COVID, the number of buyers, I'm sure you know that you know the statistic better than me, but I think the average number of buy, buyers on a buying team has gone from five to seven. Yeah, I think that, it's more than that now. I mean, Gartner's saying it's like eight to 12. I mean, 12. I think you, you'll you never get to talk to all 12 of them probably, unless you have a really great buy, uh, selling team that you so that you uh, actually pair Can people. You know, right. And because if some of them are really peripherally involved, but have a very important role and you just don't ever get to talk to them. But yeah, there are a lot of people involved and we rarely uncover them all. But in any complex sale that's hundreds of thousands, especially millions of dollars, there's no way that one or two people are going to make a decision. No way. Not going to happen. in the same office. If on your best okay. day, they're in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right, right. And, and they and all we, have to they're on different time zones. They all have to get together with each other. They all have to go through their own process. So anyway, my gosh, we could talk about this all day, but let's bring us of in office time to sell has gone away. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. Go ahead. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. It's gone away. So yeah, bring us up to where you are today with your sales team and, and how your customer buys from you. Like how do they find you and when does a salesperson get involved and tell us what it looks like today now that you've, you know, you're 10 years old. 
Yeah. So, um, so we invested a lot in upskilling our salespeople. We invest a lot in digital. So my belief is if a website could do it, a human should not. Right. Meaning, and I say this when I, you know, coach anyone on our sales team, when our sales leaders coach anyone on the sales team, we're always looking for like, does this feel like a personalized outreach or does this feel like um, a sequenced communication? Like, does this feel like someone else wrote it and anyone else could receive it and any company could swap their name out? If right. it does, we have eliminated that from, from the organization. Wow. We think a lot about, and we try to check ourselves on when we do say, for example, campaigns, what's in it for the buyer. So very, you know, recent example, I'm um, giving Tuesday. We said, we're going to, you know, um, support a charity for everyone who agrees to a meeting with us. Great. You know that a lot of people are agreeing to the meeting just because they right. want to give, you know, be charitable people. But at the end of the day, like it makes us a good investor in our communities. It makes us, right. you know, something in it for the buyer, for their time. Like 30 minutes today is incredibly valuable. So we, we, we try to, you know, our organization is structured so that there are people who differ, do different parts of the sale to, as you say, you know, sort of conquer the beast when there's, you know, eight to 12 people involved. I've seen sales cycles that we've done that have had 30 plus people involved and we make sure we work in teams and we're working in sync. Um, but it's really comes back to those key principles that you and I just discussed. Like we have a completely transparent organization. We operate cross-functionally. Everybody's accountable. Um, everybody's accountable to their teammates and we invest a ton of time in training and automation. Anything we can automate away, we automate. So if the website can do it, the website does it. If we can take away a task that a salesperson's doing that's non-value add when they could be getting trained or selling, it's yeah. gone. <laughs> you heard it's it here, okay? Automate everything you can. Yes. I mean, it's crazy to me that salespeople are still doing some of the tasks that they're doing. Let people do the important part, the human part, the part that only a human can do and get that other stuff automated. Thank you. I'm so and grateful. Training, that that. training, training. We need a million more Alice Hymans in the world. Like we need the strategists. We need the people who are like thinking big picture and who are helping develop the strategies to train people to be, to do the higher value activities yeah. they were made to do. Yeah. So that's my plea. Hey, I love it. I love it. All right. Well, oh my gosh, this has been such a great conversation and the time just flew by, which I love. And I know everyone out there who's listening got a lot um, from Heidi. So um, I'm sure she'd love for you to connect with her on LinkedIn, but Heidi, I'll let you tell everyone where they can find you. Um, absolutely LinkedIn. I love connecting with people through LinkedIn. Don't love spam and, and mail, but I will absolutely connect. To anyone so here's the rule, you guys. You have to say, Heidi, I heard you on Alice's show. Yes. And then she'll connect with you. Then I will absolutely accept your, your connection request, not even thinking twice about it. <laughs> um, I also, you can email me, Heidi at Collective Eye. Same thing. If you say that you heard the podcast, uh, I'll respond and, um, and our, check out our website, collectiveeye.com. So now I'm going to sit, mention one more thing that you didn't mention, which is you guys do a phenomenal webinars that are all with people who are oh, very, so very forward thinking. And I 
Love those. So just share a so, little bit about Yes, that. I would say so in that spirit of upskill, um, another way of saying, and I didn't mention this, which is we hire for a growth mindset. Um, I think a growth mindset and trainable come hand in hand. A growth mindset, for those of you who don't know, are people who believe um, that you constantly have to learn new things. So we host a series called Forecast. Um, if you go to ciforecast.com, you'll see the speakers we have. It's community driven. Come ask a question. We'd love to have anyone who's curious join our community. Awesome. Oh my gosh, Heidi, thank you so much. It, just delightful to have this conversation with you today. Oh, you're one of my favorite people, Alice. So oh. talented. Anyone who works with you is, myself included, is, is considers themselves fortunate. So. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Sales Talk for CEOs. You can find me at alicehyman.com. Be sure and connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you heard the show. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, write a review, and share the show with another CEO.